Anniversary episode of the Fire and Water Podcast. The podcast has started it all for the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Folks, I am one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag. Along with me, as always, is my co-host, the celebratory Rob Kelly. How are you doing, buddy? The Magnificent Seven, the Seven Year Itch, Seven. It's all it's all here if in the number. Somebody's seven. head is in a box. I'm gonna lose my mind. I'm just saying. <laughs> Spoilers. Sorry. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned Seven Year Itch because, yes, folks, it is our seventh anniversary. Seven years ago in uh, September 7th, 2011. Really, it's, it, it depends on the date. Sometimes it's September 3rd, September 7th because you know, we released the episode. Then we got it on iTunes and then we promoted it. So it's, it's all over the place. But it's this week, uh, seven years ago in two, September 2011, we launched the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And I'm glad you mentioned this. I'm sorry. No, no, Thank we you. launched the Good podcast. Point. The, not the, the podcast. See, I've gotten so used to saying the word network in there. Launch. <laughs> yeah, just roll launch it, the roll podcast. Right so I'm glad you mentioned the seven year itch because I am here to officially say I'm looking around, just shopping around for other co-hosts. I mean, the seven year itch is a real thing. Marilyn Monroe told me so. So I'm just saying. I didn't wait for seven, <laughs> but okay. That's right. You started filming water pretty early and, and trying to get away from me. I forgot about that. I, I look. I don't. I, I just want to say Chris Franklin's a, a great co-host. Wow. You know, I started with Michael Bailey uh, before I even met you, sir. So maybe I should give him a call. I'm just saying. You know, just you, we're all kidding around and being dicks to each other. But I do want to say before I forget, uh, the episode you did with with Michael on the death of Superman was really great. I thoroughly enjoyed it. That was a topic that I'm not terribly interested in just on its face, but you and Mike really made it interesting for all 17 hours of well, that. I, really I mean, good. I know you're, you're trying to lowball it. It was really 20, 22 hours, but, um, thank yeah. you. <laughs> well, I listened to it at one and a half speed. So it was I really appreciate that. Yeah. I, it was an opportunity for me to look at the death of Superman from a retailer perspective because I was working at comic shops at the time and I, Yes, that, all that and stuff. And I love—I mean, I love reliving those years. As I tell anyone that'll stand still long enough to listen, and those poor souls that do, uh, working at a comic book shop was the absolute best job I've ever had in my life. It was fantastic. I mean, sure, there's downsides to it, but having customers come in and 
come to buy stuff that they want to buy was just wonderful. It was, you know, it's a luxury product. You only go to buy comics because you want to, unless you're Diablo Frank, Diablo Frank, and then you just hate yourself for doing it. But it was so much fun. <laughs> and so working during the comic shop and getting a chance to talk about it really meant the world to me. So, mm. well, uh, before we get too much further, we should probably take a second to thank our sponsors. Um, folks, this episode of the Fire and Water podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com, as it has been for several of the past several years. And we appreciate their sponsorship. Uh, folks, uh, you can get all kinds of trades on their website for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Uh, Rob, what did you bring? Well, I noticed uh, when we were comparing notes before we started, you, you picked something that's from 2001, and so I decided to do the same thing. And so I have Catwoman Volume 1, and it's the subtitle is Trail of the Catwoman, and it, it reprints the Catwoman backup strips from Detective Comics numbers 759 through 762, plus Catwoman numbers 1 through 9 by Edward Brubaker and the great, late great, mm. Darwin Cook. Uh, yeah, I mean, this this was an amazing run. This was probably, probably the last time I ever bought Detective Comics because it was right after DC had had Chip Kidd do all the uh, cover redress for those books, and they had these great Don, Dave Johnson covers, and it was it was a really good run on Detective Comics. I love that book, and they had Catwoman backups, like the old <laughs> days. Backup strips was really cool. So this collects those backups plus some issues of her series. It features that great shot of Catwoman kind of crouched up with her claws out by Darwin Cook. I mean, everybody, Darwin Cook, everybody loves Darwin Cook. Um, 336 pages, normal price $29.99, in stock trades price $17.39, 42% off. Catwoman by Brubaker and Darwin Cook. Great comics. Probably the best. Did Catwoman he create that had. redesign for her costume? That um, The fantastic one with the big goggles and all that and getting away from the Jim Blanton I look? Think, yeah, I, I, I think believe so. he did. I mean, that I was a good the big thick boots and stuff. Yeah, it's it's great. Yeah. It's great. So I picked something, uh, and Rob well, Rob was leaning into it, and we'll talk about it later. But yes, I picked something from 2001. I picked JSA by Jeff Johns, Trade Paperback Volume 2, which, by the way, was an amazing run on JSA. Jeff Johns' early stuff, that this was when I was completely all in on JSA. It reprints JSA 16 through 25, plus Secret Origins Supervillains, Our Worlds at War from JSA, and The Secret Files. And it's also got the uh, JLA, JSA Virtue and Vice graphic novel, which was amazing. And it's a, it was a wonderful area for the JS, era for the JSA. It was so much fun. You, again, Jeff John's writing. You get uh, David Goyer was doing some of the writing. You get Steven Sadowski on art. Alan Davis cover. It's just beautiful. It's 400 pages. It's, again, uh, it concludes that Justice League 25, or JSA 25, was when they, they finally got done with all the nonsense with Hawkman's origin and boil, or, uh, retcons and boiled it down to Carter Hall's back. Forget everything you knew. Who cares? Just focus on this guy. And it made sense for the first time in a decade. And uh, it normally retails for twenty nine ninety nine. You can get in stock trades for seventeen dollars and thirty nine cents, and you save forty two percent at that price. Heck of a price. If you've never read them, they're so good. And where I'm going with it, and you'll find out more later. But JSA number twenty five, that one I was just talking about with Hawkman, uh, was on the shelves on June twentieth, two thousand one. Remember that date, folks. It will be important later. There will be a quiz, in fact. So for these and all your trade paperback needs, please visit. InStockTrades.com. So, uh, seven years. You know, I mean, this is pretty much where, because we've completed seven years now, right? So, this is where the series usually ends, right? And it just goes into syndication. Isn't that how it works? That's right. Yes, we have enough episodes to finally syndicate the show. It's that's exactly. where the money so comes. I, in. I think uh, this will just be our big farewell tour. And, I, and Rob and I, because I mean, when when it's time for contract renegotiation, I know they're not going to be able to afford me next time. So, uh, you know, it's been it's been a good run. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. I look forward to uh, us doing shows independently of each other, never actually meeting up again, <laughs> except on the uh, Fire and Water Network. We'll see each other from across Facebook. the recording studio, and like I'll be eating a muffin, and then I'll see you and how skinny you are, and I'll just throw it in the trash in anger, and like, damn him. So, <laughs> in all seriousness, no, though, uh, I mean, we haven't done as many Fire and Water episodes over the last year, that's for certain, uh, and we've done divergences like last time we talked about the Justice League rather than specifically Firestorm Aquaman, but it is the year of Aquaman, so you will be here more episodes about Aquaman. It would be nice if I could squeeze an episode of Firestorm in there once in a while, Rob. I'm just saying, maybe. Uh, when he gets a movie. Yeah, <laughs> it's sure. the fire and water podcast. I'm just saying the fire comes first. But <sighs> All right. Well, do you want to introduce the, the topic? Well, we have a couple that we're, we're later on in the show, we are going to be doing a flashback to some communications that Shag and I had in the early days of, of our quote unquote relationship uh, that we dug out of the files. That'll be fun to get to. But, but the main time we, we were kind of thinking about what did we want to do for this show because i mean god we've done 215 of these things plus who's who and all these other things together and you've been on a bunch of film and waters and i've been on none of the JLI. It that so i mean it, we have this whole thing exactly <laughs> and so we decided um and this was partly ryan ryan's idea uh, which was to bash on the <laughs> Jedi, but we're going to pass on that. And we took his second idea, uh, which was we're each going to list seven comic books that were influential to us in some way or the other. Uh, and then I think we each are coming at these from slightly different angles, even within our own lists. But uh, I would kind of like that idea. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to each talk about seven comics that were significant in our lives and, and my list a lot of these i've talked about on various episodes and i know each of you have committed all 215 episodes of this show to memory so <laughs> it may not come as a surprise That's but right. you know if you're hearing something again uh just go roll with it folks we won't keep it too long i promise you want to kick us off buddy yeah i guess let's start we're going to trade back and forth and like i said i i my list and i'm not going to reveal what the list is all at once we're just going to go back and forth it's all cherry pop i went back i that's right. Yeah. Well, that's get. Well, that's a whole podcast by itself. Um, no, I I decided to pick books that had some again some significance in my life, either for the content or how I got them. That's that's okay. where I'm going back and forth. And I didn't want and I didn't want to repeat myself because everybody knows that anybody anybody that asks me about what comic books are my favorites, that list. Starts and ends with Justice League of America. Oh, really? I never knew that. So, yeah, yeah, you never knew that. Yeah, I mean, we devoted a whole episode to the to the to that comic, and I didn't want to repeat myself. So, I'm not going to mention JLA 200. Just did. I'm not going to mention. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. It's not on the list. I'm not going to mention whatever happened to the Crimson Avenger from DC Comics presents number 38. I'm not going to mention the Tomahawk runs. You know, stuff that I've gone gone over on a, a bunch of other times. And I'm not even going to list any what? Aquaman comics on this list because I know because we've again we've talked about Aquaman extensively and we're going to talk about it more because this, this it's is a celebration of, of the you know. Firestorm and Aquaman podcast. You're not even going to mention Aquaman, okay? Well, I'm making up for that. I've got Aquaman on mine. Ah, uh, this really is this. This feels every inch of seven years. <laughs> Hey, so record, uh, the, tonight he was the one who was late. By the way, normally it's me. He was late tonight. Look at that. Seven years. It finally flipped. You want to total the minutes <laughs> up? You want to play that game? I don't think you do. Anyway, uh, my first book is DC Superstars number seventeen, which was Secret Origins of the Superheroes, and it features three different stories: Origins of Green Arrow, the Legion of Superheroes, ironically <laughs> enough, and the <laughs> and the Huntress. And the reason is. 
the reason this book's significant, first of all, it's got a Huntress origin drawn by Joe Staten. As everybody knows, I love Joe Staten, and it, it gives you all the stuff about how Batman married Catwoman and she was murdered and all those other great story. Now, the reason this is significant to me is, and I've told this story on Film and Water, I think I've even told it on this show, but there was the time when my dad took me and my sister to the movies, and we were going to go see <laughs> 101 Dalmatians, the reissue. And it was sold out, or, or we missed it or something. We couldn't get into it. And my sister and my dad wanted to, you know, we had made plans for the evening. So we were going to see a movie one way or the other. And the other movie that was playing that they wanted to see was Kramer vs. Kramer. <laughs> so, so my dad was like, can he bribe his eight-year-old son into watching a two-hour movie about divorce? And the, the bribe was... I'll, we'll walk across this because it was in a mall. This movie theater was in a mall, in the Chamonix Mall in, in Pennsylvania. You want to walk over to the Woolworths, and I'll buy you some comic books. I, of course, I'm going to go for that deal. So I said yes, and we ended up seeing the movie. And I remember I sat through it just fine because it's a movie. There's no movie that I can't just like really muscle my way through. Uh, the movie had uh, full frontal nudity, which was great for an eight year old to see. Um, and and but I remember going to get the comics, and one of the comics I remember buying was. DC Superstars, number 17. And and because it, it, it the Huntress origin especially, it was a window into Earth 2. And as a kid, I loved everything Earth 2. Everything Earth 2. I just loved all the history. It gave me an insight to like all the past stuff from DC Comics history. I just loved it. And so that comic was always like so valuable to me in my mind because it was like, wow, that was that funny story. And then my dad got me the comic. The problem is it didn't happen I was going to say, I way. listened to that Film because, and Water episode. I was waiting to, waiting my turn here. Right. Right. Because because that Kramer versus Kramer came out in 1979 and DC Superstars number 17 came out in August of 1977. There is no way, even with newsstand distribution, that this book was still on sale two years later. There's just no way. So my memory is faulty. Obviously, I bought the. Com- I'm sure I bought the comic at that Woolworths in the mall because I remember it. I remember, the, I remember the where it was situated within the store. But obviously, those two events are completely not related to one another. But I somehow have conflated them. Nevertheless, it's a great comic. I still have the copy. I don't have the same exact copy, but I have a copy. It's a really super comic book. The cover is great. You've got this pose of Huntress looking there all badass with these files, and then the Legion and Green Hour coming in. They're like, <gasps> you know, that kind of thing. So it's a super comic, uh, but unfortunately has no connection to Kramer well, versus Kramer. Sometimes so, the story is better than the reality, and so you'd stick with yes. the story anyway. For example, I have a story where I used to podcast for seven years with this guy, and he was always nice to me, um, and that's better than the reality. But now that Huntress, that comic – is that right. Michael Bailey? If I remember about? right, um, Huntress, that was her first time they told her origin that way. Was I mean, I think they had said she's the daughter of Batman, you yes. know, Batman and, and Catwoman. But wasn't that the first time they actually revealed her full origin? Yeah, I remember yes. that one. I have yes. that one too. Yeah, good stuff. Nice story too. Yeah, it's a great comic. So my first pick is, believe it or not, also brushes with Earth 2. My first pick is Justice League of America number 171 from cover date, or not cover date, but released in July 1979. This was the first Justice League comic I ever had. I was familiar with the Super Friends, of course, and so I got this, and it blew my freaking mind because it's one of those annual team-ups between the JLA and the JSA, and it starts off with them all hanging out and having like a a, a cocktail reception or something, if you will, and I'm like – why are there two Green Lanterns? I don't understand. You know, and they had the typical panels in the beginning where they show, you know, Earth One has these people, Earth Two has these people. 
And I studied the crap out of this thing. I, you know, knowing me as a kid, I probably made lists. I, I would imagine of who was where. But I, and also, this issue features the death of Mister Terrific. Was a, you know, I had no idea who the guy was, but I was like, oh, he died. You know, and and of course, as a kid, you buy one issue and you you don't get the subsequent one because it was a cliffhanger. It took me almost twenty years to find out who killed uh, Mister Terrific. So I, I never realized who it was and didn't think to read the who's who entries all the way through to figure it out. But what really makes this issue important to me, Justice League of America number 171 in July uh, 1979, we had just moved to Florida. Literally, uh, we moved in August, so this would have been probably sitting in the newsstand for a month. And this comic showed up at my house one day, and it was with a note to me from a secret admirer. And, yeah. Oh, my. And it turns out uh, it was my sister. She was trying to cheer me up. I guess maybe I was struggling with the move because, you know, all my friends were on the other side of the country. I'm not sure. But it was something my sister did. She did this twice. She did this once with a Justice League comic, once with a Fantastic Four comic. And it, even at the time, I recognized how thoughtful it was of a girl. You know, I was, what, 79, so I'm seven years old, so she's 10. You know, a 10-year-old girl spent her money on this comic to cheer up her little brother. And it was so incredibly thoughtful. And part of the reason it means so much to me is my sister's gone now. She um, she passed away in a car accident when she was 16. So I still have this copy, and it's still just beat to hell because I read it forever. I will never get rid of it. And, uh, you know, besides being a fantastic comic, I mean, come on, it's Jerry Conway, Dick Dillon, and Frank uh, McLaughlin. But it's, uh, it's a special memory for me of a, a wonderful moment from that where I can reconnect with my sister still. That's amazing. That's great. Yeah. I love that. Beat that, buddy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, boy. You really started well, off with a, with a the rest of mine are big one there. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, and my last one's a real downer, so there's that. So, okay. Uh, my next book is uh, Marvel Fanfare number two, uh, which was, for anyone who doesn't remember, Marvel Fanfare was a series, an anthology series put out by Marvel in the early 80s, and it was on deluxe paper, and it had like a high, uh, it was like $1.50 mm-hmm. back then, which was a lot of I think it was direct money. market only, too. And, um, it was direct market only. The whole idea was that it was like the highest end material, like really good printing, and it was it was stuff that was saved supposedly for this really you know like really deluxe presentation. Now that ended up not really being true. It was mostly yeah, I think Quest Probe number four ended up there actually. They, so yeah, yeah. So they they're stretching a little bit, but nevertheless. But I Marvel Fanfare was the I discovered that comic at the first real comic shop I ever shopped at, which was Comic Crypt in Oakland, New Jersey, which is still there, by the way. And and I fell in love with the book because it just felt like this is something you couldn't get at a newsstand. You know, it was like everything that made buying comics at a specialty shop so exciting. It was like, oh, my God, I'm never going to get this. So anyway, uh, Marvel Fanfare was a big hit with uh, of the first issue because it features a uh, Savage Land storyline with Spider-Man, Kazar, and the X-Men all crossing over. And for whatever reason, I guess retailers didn't think the book was going to be a hit, so they under-ordered the second issue, So, which happens a lot with, with comic book series. So, con- so consequently, number two was really hard to find. Like it was very few copies got out, and so I never had it. So my collection went from one to three – and then four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine. And of course, like any collector, that <laughs> drove me crazy because it's like a smile with a missing tooth. You know, you're like, oh my God, I got a number two. And I could never find it. Then one day, I went, I, my dad took me to Comic Crypt, like on a Friday night, which is something we typically did. And I went into the store and I just happened to look in the back issues. And there was a copy in the back issue bins of Marvel Fanfare number two for like <laughs> $6, you know, which in 1982 money was a lot of money. You know, I was like, oh my God. And I, you know, I was like, oh, and I realized I can't afford that. So I bought, I bought the comic 
that I there was there to get. And I walked out and I walked into my dad into the car where my dad was waiting. And I was all like, cue the Charlie <laughs> Brown music, you know. And and uh, you know he's like, okay. And he's like, how you know did you get what you want? I'm like, yeah. You know, and he's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, nothing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so, so I finally explained to him. And, you know, look, my dad and I, we didn't always have the easiest time getting along when I was younger. We have a much better relationship now. And something was, you know, he was, he's not a, a comic book guy. He's not an entertainment guy. Like, he's just, that's just not his wheelhouse. So I think he always had a hard time understanding his son that he was into all this weird, nerdy stuff. And, of course, consequently, I was afraid to talk to him about it because I just didn't, I knew he couldn't relate. But for the first time I was able to kind of tell him, oh, this, there's this series and I, I'm missing an issue and I'm really sad because they have it and I can't afford it. And I really want blah, blah, blah. And I honestly was not trying to play the sympathy card. I just, I was guileless at that point. And my dad sort of paused for a moment and he reached into his wallet and he said, wow. go get it. And he gave me the money and I went in and I bought the book for $6 and it was, you know, it's a, it's a great book and it's got an amazing cover by Michael Golden of Kazar fighting this um, Spider-Man who's been turned into a giant tarantula. But it was just, you know, that moment was just amazing. My dad was so like, he didn't, he, I'm sure he could not understand why it was so important to me, but he knew that it was. And the fact that he just was like, here you go. And I read that book on the way home. I think I even had like a flashlight. I couldn't wait to read it. You know, I'm so excited. So I will always think of that particular issue in that moment. I can still picture being in the back of my dad's car and looking at him as he gave me the money. Man, all these are so emotional. Uh, Again, now my mind turns to fluff starting right here. So Uh, my next one is Star Wars number 50 from May 1981. I was a diehard Star Wars fan as a kid. Um, star life began and did not really began, but like my fandom of anything began with Star Wars, and I could see nothing else on the horizon at that point. And you know, I had the Star Wars action figures, and I just I everything was Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars. You know, Star Wars bed sheets, which I still have, by the way, uh, anything I could get my hands on. But I didn't buy the Star Wars comic book. I I had a couple um, that, you know, I mean, I think every kid in the 70s was issued reprints of issues like four, five and six of of that series because that was that you just had to have them. So I had like some of the issues that reprinted the the retelling of the first Star Wars, but I hadn't really bought them. In fact, I wasn't really a comic book collector at this point. I had some comics like I had the Just League comic I mentioned. I had a Fantastic Four comic. I had, you know, God knows how many sad sack comics, but I wasn't a comic collector. I didn't buy anything regularly. So I see Star Wars number 50 in May 1981. And if you know your history, May 1981, that means Empire Strikes Back is out and Return is not. And so Han Solo is nowhere to be found. And of course, in my head, I've already made up 18 ways that Luke saved Han Solo from Carbonite, right? And I go to the the convenience store, and there on the rack is Star Wars number 50. And it's this gorgeous painted cover um, by Tom Palmer. It's great. You pick it up. It's like double-sized. It's huge. It's thick. And it's got the whole Star Wars cast on there, including Han Solo. And I'm like, oh, Han Solo? Do they save him? You know, and I'm thinking they're going to save Han Solo in this comic rather than the next movie, right? So I pick it up and I flip there. It's Archie Goodwin writing. It's Al Williamson uh, penciling and Tom Palmer inking. It's just glorious. I love to this comic. I think it's uh, to this day. I think it's one of the best anniversary issues of any comic book. It's a done in one. You get some stories from the past. You get some of the, uh, from the present. You get some Han stuff, Luke stuff. It's a and it's at freaking Al Williamson. It's a great comic. I love it. So I bought it. And at that point, I decided I was going to continue to buy the Star Wars comics. So I, well, I still didn't consider myself a comic book collector. 
I was collecting a comic book all of a sudden. I was collecting the Star Wars comic. And I continued on from issue 50 all the way to uh, shortly after Return of the Jedi. Now, since then, I filled them all in, obviously, and I love the Marvel run. But that is what began, unknowingly, me buying comic books with Star Wars number 50. That's a great cover. I remember that. I have that comic somewhere in storage. Yeah, it's it's like all Mm -hmm. like CP Mm -hmm. tones kind of thing. Yeah, oh, it's really great. That whole Marvel series. Well, not all of it. (laughs) Well, okay, but out of 97 issues, that's, you know, even if you have two thirds, really. Well, you just discounted 10 of them. It's 107. But anyway, uh, yeah. Well, it got real funky towards the end. Cynthia Martin and uh, Will Spartaccio and stuff. It was nuts. But uh, for me personally, like start with issue 50 and go to like the Return of the Jedi, which I think which is issue 81 or whatever. It's just glory. It's it's David Michelini, Walt Simonson, you know, Al Williamson, Tom Palmer. It is freaking awesome. It's so good. I think you're discounting Baron Taggart, but that's a topic (laughs) for another day. We can have that conversation. That's fine. (laughs) We're going to have an episode on Star Wars comics. Um, okay, my next book is a book most of you have heard of. Uh, it's called The Dark Knight Returns. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The, 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 and obviously I'm not going to talk about the, the interiors of Batman The Dark Knight Returns. It's one of the most analyzed comic books ever. Uh, I still think it's great. I know over time people have come to you know, regard it as a little more skeptically, and I think partly that is because – of of the subsequent sequels, which yes. are complete garbage, uh, but uh, but I don't think that that has anything to do. I don't think that reflects badly on the original series. The way I would say the same thing about like the Jaws movies, Jaws two, three, and four are not very good, but doesn't make Jaws the original any less good. But the thing I remember about Dark Knight Returns was this was back when I was buying comics via Westfield hmm. subscription. Do you remember what that is? Did, didn't they have the you know ad with like a little house or something like that? That's yeah. that's exactly who they were, and I, I love the idea of getting comics like just delivered to me. There was something so attractive because obviously when you're 15 or 16 and you don't have a car, you don't have a license, you're really limited to where your parents are willing to take you. So this time I was like, well, comics <laughs> in my house, be perfect. I never I never have to go outside at all. <laughs> no so son I, ever again. I subscribe. No, no son ever again. I'm like a mole man. Um, so I subscribed to Westfield, and my comics are coming. And then, so far, it works pretty good. You know, there's a box, there's the books. And Dark Knight Returns was, was one of those books that, like, there was a lot of anticipation. You know, you knew it was coming. And I remembered knowing Mar- Dark Knight number one came out on March 20th, 1986. I remember knowing that the book um, – the day it was coming out, and I it was a day I obviously I went to school, and I remember being dropped off at the bus and knowing that the package was wow. waiting for me. And I remember I, I, I got off at a different stop because the stop that I norm the, the stop that was closest to my house had a kid at it that Yikes. liked to beat me up. So I would I would stay off of that stop. I would get off at a different stop and just take a slightly longer walk home. And I remember doing that. I had my book bag, and even though I had like 50 pounds of books in it, I remember running home at full speed because I could not wait to read this book. Like that, I just, it was like cue the chariots of fire music or something. It was just, I could not wait. I have never been that excited for a comic book probably ever again because I just, I knew that this thing was special. I'd seen the cover. And it was just not going to be like anything I had ever read. And, and, and boy, it wasn't. It lived up to that 15-year-old's anticipation. It was just, I, again, I still remember running up the different streets. And those are streets that I still travel when I go visit my parents because they still live in the house. And yeah, I remember just running as hard as I can because I could not wait to read Batman. So is Mark Baker Knight Knight Knight. Wright still waiting on those street corners to beat you up? or 
<laughs> or so he's moved out of the neighborhood. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> Man, that's wow. I didn't realize that people were so in the know in the book. I mean, I remember seeing the house ads. Um, and I really, I, I, Dick Turgiano talked about it in his Meanwhile okay. columns too. He really helped. Well, I see. What, what what date did that comic come out? March. Okay, I would have been buying DC by then. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Interesting. Now, I, one thing I, I found out in later. This is completely irrelevant, but did, are, isn't the title not Dark Knight Returns? Like each volume had its own title. Batman: The Dark Knight Returns. Um. Yes. There's a Dark Knight Triumphant, the Dark Knight This or That. But yeah, I mean, everybody just refers to right. It as I the just Dark I only Knight found out recently that wasn't actually the name of the comic. It's just it's become known as that as a right. collected edition. So it's interesting. Yep. Uh, yep. My next one is another comic people probably have not heard of. Uh, it's Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars. I don't know if you, this is rings any bells or not. Uh, I know Secret Wars <laughs> two. I'm not. Was there, there's an earlier <laughs> series. I there was a prequel, right? <laughs> oh, yes, okay. Marvel Superheroes right, Secret Wars uh, Volume One, specifically issue number two. And I've told this story before, so you probably people here have heard this one, I'm sure. So, but I'm gonna I'll I'll, I'll do it quickly again. Sixth grade, uh, I'm at a new school, middle school, and I and I'm in the gifted class with all these brainy kids, and I'm like the dumb kid in the brainy class. Yeah, sure. And they are all sitting around the lunch table talking about Galactus and Magneto and Doctor Doom, and they're like so excited and so hyped up about it. My only exposure to Marvel characters are from Spider-Man and the Amazing Friends. So when they say Spider-Man and Doctor Doom, I'm like, oh, I've heard of them, you know, sort of thing. I didn't know who Galactus was. I didn't know who Magneto was. I got made fun of. I got made fun of by other sixth graders because I didn't know who Galactus was, and I didn't know who Ultron was. It, I literally got mocked and bullied for not knowing who these characters were. It's crazy. Nerd bullying was a thing, and, you know, I cannot remember. I know. In 1984, I got made fun of for not knowing who Ultron was. Seriously? So uh, I went home, you know, again, play, cue the Charlie Brown music, you know, dun, 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 walking home from the bus, just sad as can be. And I go to that local convenience store, the same one where I bought Star Wars number 50. And lo and behold, there is Marvel Superhero Secret Wars issue number two. It's a great Magneto cover. And I'm like, I am going to buy this comic purposefully right now so that I can be educated and participate in conversations with my friends. I mean that it was not a choice of wow this looks fun. It was a it was a you know social survival manual is what this thing was. <laughs> so I bought it and I loved it. You know, I'm Jim Shooter, Mike Zach, John Beatty, I mean come on. And that was actually the well while, while I bought the Star Wars comic first, this was the moment I considered myself where I became a comic book collector. Secret Wars number two. All because of peer pressure. Your first taste is free, kid, or in that case, I think seventy-five cents. But uh, and that's that's what led me down to this horrible life that I'm on now. So once you knew about who Ultron did, Mark Baker Wright finally lit up <laughs> on you. He would frog me in the shoulder every day after class. Him and Kichi Baker, it was terrible. No, um, <laughs> no. Uh, it, I mean, I, I I don't know that I was ever really part of the group, but I mean, I wasn't quite as much of an outsider. I could talk to him about it now, and and I, I bought the whole. Funny, you talked about six dollars from Marvel Fanfare. Uh, Secret Wars number one was $5. And at the time, that was the most expensive comic I ever bought. And I remember sort of like you, it was just like, do mm. I really want to spend my whole, you know, birthday money or whatever it was, you know, on this comic? Yes, I do. You know, just so I could see that huge, uh, you know, exposition in the first page where everyone goes, well, I don't know, Hulk, what do you think? Well, Captain America, I believe that. <laughs> yeah, that... Uh, so, yep, that's what led me to this life of crime. All right. Okay. Well, the, my next book is uh, – there was a DC anthology 
horror series, kind of horror, uh, in the late eighties oh, called yeah. Wasteland, and it was yeah, it was it was done by a roving, uh, rotating uh, bunch of creators: Del Close, Sean Ostrander, George Freeman, David Lloyd, William Messner, Loeb's, Donald Simpson, uh, and it was it was. I mean, a lot of it was horror, but also some of it was just kind of weirdness or just offbeat kind of stories. Some were even humor stories. Some were more kind of like thriller stories. Some had com- were flat-out comedy. And it was Vertigo mm-hmm. before Vertigo, really. I mean, it was, you know, had, had they had the Vertigo imprint, this would have been one of those books. But it was just before that. And so anyway, I bought every issue of Wasteland because I really liked it. I just thought it was really cool and very, very different. And there is one story that is my all-time favorite and i still have this particular issue in storage and it's called raul and it's from wasteland number nine it's by john ostrander and donald simpson and i don't want to ruin the whole story but basically the idea is uh there's this inner city where crime starts getting really out of hand and it's partly brought in by um led by a guy named raul who becomes kind of the the local tough guy and the way he builds up his rep is he starts bad-mouthing hmm. God. He starts talking about that God's a punk. God's a little bitch. You know, and he's like, if God ever shows up on a street corner, I'll kick God's ass. And, of course, he shows up at a street corner, and, of course, God does not show up. And that makes everybody think, oh, well, God's just a pansy, so we can do what we want. There is no punishment. There's no, there's no anything. And so the city gets worse and worse and worse, and Raul just keeps – upping the ante saying, you know, if God shows up at this street corner, I'm going to kick his teeth in and I'll F his sister and I'll do all this horrible thing. And of course, God does not show up and the city just gets worse and worse. And eventually they even think they even talk about that. Like, um, the, 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 the rest of the state builds a wall mm. around the city because it's just so out of control. And then one day, this little kid, this little black kid with like Herbie glasses and one of those pinwheel hats sucking a lollipop says, you know, I think, and the line is something like, God's a busy man doing creation and all. He doesn't have time to deal with every pockmarked son of a bitch who goes mouthing off. But he's going to make an exception this time. You be at this corner, at this date, and God's going to show you what's what. And, of course, everybody's like, well, come on, Raul. You're a tough guy. You're not afraid of God, right? And Raul shows up, and this little kid shows up and beats the living crap out of Raul. <laughs> and basically, Raul gets shuffled, shuffled off. And uh, the town goes back to normal and it gets better. And then the ending is – and I'm ruining it, but what the hell. The ending is the whole – there's a narrator saying people being people go back to their bad ways. The hookers start showing up again. The, dro- the, uh, the candy man shows up at street corners. But even the worst mothers out there no longer badmouth yeah. God. And that's the end of the story. And there was just something so beautiful about that. It's kind of got a very clear eye about human behavior, but yet is also sort of reverent towards a supreme being. I just, I love its humor. I think I love its originality. It's my favorite story that Wasteland ever did. I think it's a great, wow. great story. Okay. I didn't see that one coming. Wasteland's an interesting series. I didn't read it. Um, I picked up most of it in a, like a discount bin actually within the last couple of years and it's on my to read pile if i wasn't busy podcasting all the damn time i'd be able to read these things uh i will tell you though that if you ever do want to talk about it john ostrander loves talking about wasteland uh yeah oh does he oh that's he should be should be very proud of Del close were actually suit. very close um they were they were friends and if i remember Dell was taught like improv classes and stuff like that yeah, and yes, he did. Yeah, and Legendary. John was, you know, uh, very involved in that sort of scene before comics, and so yeah, they they were tight. So he Del Close taught most of the original cast members mm. of Saturday Night Live, 
Um, uh, he was that, and he taught many generations at Second City. He taught like all like Steve Carell and Tina Fey. And if you want to ever wonder, if you ever wonder what Del Close looked like, you can see him in the movie The Untouchables. Uh, he is the guy who tries to bribe Elliot Ness into uh, folding up his investigation, and he's the one who says to Elliot Ness, everyone mm. can be gotten to, and then Elliot Ness throws him out of the office. That's Del Close. And when Del Close died, he asked that his skull be donated to the college that he taught at to be used in Hamlet. And so when people do Hamlet, that is literally Del Close's skull. Wow, using as a- that's really cool. Creepy but cool. Interesting guy. All right. Yep. Well, uh, my next one's not nearly so dark and grim. It's actually more shiny and happy. Uh, my next one is not a comic book per se, but it's going to lead us to a comic book. Uh, mine, uh, we'll just start with the date, September 8th, 1984. September 8th, 1984, folks, a day that will live in infamy because that was the day a certain television show aired. And that would be the very first episode of the season of Super Friends, the legendary superpower show. And Rob, who premiered in that first season, that first episode? Oh, Cyborg, I believe. No, that was the next season, you jerk. The season before that. <laughs> that would yeah. be Firestorm. Of of in of the course. Bride of Darkseid was the name of the episode. And I, That's such a great episode. Bonkers, but, so I watched this episode, and Firestorm, sorry, that is, this is, other than seeing him on the cover of comics at the convenience store, this was my first exposure to the character, ever. This was it. This, this put me on a path for the rest of my life. It's like, wow, this guy's great. When I found out he's like a teenage kid, and he's got, you know, the, and he's hanging out with his teacher, basically, and they form Firestorm, and he's got all these, basically, wish-fulfillment powers, you know, even better than Green Lantern's wish-fulfillment power. And I'm like, this is amazing. So I went up to the, the and I've told this story. Story that I told on the very first episode. Uh, you know, I went and bought issue number twenty-eight of Fury of Firestorm, starring who? Uh, Firestorm. Issue tw- issue twenty-eight. Come um, on. Uh, uh, who was the patron saint of the Fire and Water podcast? Very good. Oh, Thank Slipknot. You. <laughs> first appearance of Slipknot. So yeah. Uh, so really, it's well, Fury of Firestorm number twenty-eight is a very important comic. I am actually giving the credit to the first episode of Super Friends from that season. So it uh, it really changed my whole direction. I, I bought issue twenty-eight and issue thirty that day and was hooked for life. Well, I have no proof of this, but I'm betting that in that first episode, the original title of that episode was "Dark Side Has a Hard On." Oh, uh, I think it was the working title. And, yeah. <laughs> Standards of practices were like no, and they're like okay, bride of bride of dark side. Dark side okay, wants to grind on Diana Prince. No, no, that doesn't work either. Okay, <laughs> third base. No, okay. Let me show you my boom tube. Uh, so, all right, my my next uh, my next book is The Incredible Hulk number hmm. one fifty. Uh, now, the original comic uh, is the title of it is Cry Hulk, Cry Havoc by Archie Goodwin. Him again. Herb Trimpey, and John Severin. And I didn't buy this comic originally off the stands because it came out in January of 1972, so I'm too young for that. It was reprinted in Marvel Treasury Edition number 17, which is an old Hulk issue. And the reason it's so memorable is there's this, the Hulk and Havoc end up fighting each other out in, like, the Grand Canyon somewhere. Like way, Havoc, way out Havoc in the from desert. the X-Men? Okay. Yes, yes. Which is, he was always one of my favorite X-Men, too, just because I love that costume. I thought it was one of the most badass costumes of all time. So anyway, there's this moment in the story where Havoc is on a cliff. So he's like 50 stories up, and the Hulk is down at the bottom. And Havoc is like, you know, Hulk wants to get to Havoc, and Havoc is like, I'm going to stay up here. I'm going to use my powers to keep the Hulk at bay. And Hulk's like, if uh, Havoc will not come to Hulk, Hulk will bring Havoc to Hulk or something. And there's this great panel... And it's it's half the page where the Hulk rips an entire face of the cliff off 
which forces Havoc just to fall to the ground. And it, it is, when I think of the Incredible Hulk, it is that moment that I think about because it is, to me, Herb Trimpey and John Severin, either their draftsmanship and their storytelling ability really conveyed just how powerful the Hulk was. And the fact that it was done in a treasury means the panel itself is like the size of my head. And so I remember getting that treasury and just being so blown away of like, because the Hulk was on TV by then and I read Hulk comics, but I had never seen his strength conveyed in such a, distilled into such a single image. And there's something about it. And I, every time I look at the panel, I'm like, that is just me. That is, that is the Hulk. That image of him ripping off the entire front of a cliff with just his hands to bring somebody down to his level. And so it is like my favorite Hulk moment of all. I love the Hulk. I, I don't really – we ever have a chance to talk about him very much on the network. But like he's one of my favorite characters growing up. It's one of my favorite comics. I never missed it. I bought the Hulk and Marvel superheroes so that way I got two Hulk, <laughs> two Hulk comics a month. Uh, and when I, if I could get Rampaging Hulk, when I would find it, I would get three. But uh, that moment is like pure comic book superhero bliss of just – and Archie Goodman, of course, wrote it. Uh, and he knew what he was doing, so it's just—it's one of my favorite, like Marvel. Were they, um, were they in a town, like a weird town or something, during that one? Like there was a radiation leak or something? Yeah, because I forget—I don't remember that part. But Hulk ends up facing like a chain gang and stuff. He takes on kind of like these pseudo hells. Well, I just reread uh, the the X Men Epic Collection, and it had like the Claremont, uh, the first run of Claremont, you know, first Lenween and then Claremont, and it had all the ancillary ones. And I want to say there was there was a Hulk story in there. And Hulk was fighting somebody, and I think it might have been – I don't know. I think I've read that issue. So the way you're describing it, I'm like, this sounds very familiar. I think I read that recently. So I think it's been reprinted several times, so it wouldn't cool. surprise me at all. Uh, my next comic is another one of these lost to the history of time that no one remembers. It's called Crisis on Infinite Earths, um, number eight <laughs> specifically, from August 1985. And here's why I bought it, because I uh, had played the Marvel superheroes role-playing game. Me and my friends uh, – and you know one of them, or at least know of him, Simon um, – we used to play the Marvel superheroes role playing game oh, yes. when we were kids. Well, then I heard DC was coming out with one, so I went and bought the DC role playing game, and I'm reading the book just freaking cover to cover. I just just absorbed every bit of this Mayfair role playing game, and I still love it. Cisco and I do a podcast on it about once or twice a year about it, and there is a bit in there where they're doing all the main characters and giving you their stats, and the one for the Flash, and it says you know it talks about the Flash and his speed, and it ends with. Barry Allen gave his life in Crisis on Infinite Earths number eight. And like, you know, those moments in TV shows where the camera freezes and it somehow it like it stays on the character, but the background just pans back really weird and all warped, like a shocking (gasps) kind of moment. It was that for me because I had just bought Flash number 350, you know, Flash's last issue, thinking this is a great comic. I love it. I'm going to buy Flash from now on. What do you mean it's the last issue? Anyway, and so I find out Barry Allen died and just I was like, What? And so I talk about a big spoiler, too, because it, it only been on the shelf for a little while. I was still able to find it at the convenience store. So I went up to the convenience store as quick as I could. Again, same place I got my Firestorm, my Star Wars, uh, you know, Secret Wars. All, I, it was called a Sing store at the time. I went there all the time and bought Crisis Number 8. And we're getting ready to go on a road for a road trip. So I got that, and I read it on the road. And, I, you know, a million characters in this book, right? I mean, I'm looking at a poster of 500 of them, uh, literally right now. So I, that's where the lists that Rob loves to make fun of me for started. All these lists of, okay, Earth One has, because I, I knew there were different Earths because that Justice League comic I owned. And so I just started writing down everything I could about Crisis. On the same road trip, we bought Crisis number six as well that I found at a drugstore. So I had number six and number eight. And I must have read both of those issues because we were driving to Michigan. So that's two days in the car. I must have read the crap out of both of them for, like, I don't know when I got. 
got number seven. That, that obviously came later. But six and eight, I read the mess out of just trying to figure this whole thing out. And that was other, you know, I bought Firestorm. But besides that, that was my first real big, big exposure to the wider DC universe when I was collecting comics. And that's what got me to buy other DC comics was Crisis. Worked yeah. as design. It's all because of Mayfair games and spoilers. <laughs> Amazing how we get to these things. Uh, very cool. Like, you're really going for the I, I really am. I'm stuff, trying to pick you know? books that people haven't heard of. Crisis. You're cool. Although I did. And you did Wasteland. I mean, come on. Everyone's got that on their show. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That would make a great Netflix series, but I digress. Um, okay. Well, my next book is um, Warren. Warren Publishing, uh, which is one of those things that I don't know how much people remember anymore outside of Vampirella. Vampirella is still a thing, but most people don't really remember the Warren magazines. And But I, I love them. They were the kind of things that – Growing up, I didn't see a lot of, and but if I did get one, if I could find one, I would get one because it was just like a, this portal into Alterna Comics. And one of the earliest ones I ever found was their science fiction magazine, 1994. Originally, it was called 1984, but once they got close to that year, they bumped <laughs> it up 10 years to the far-flung age of 1994. I have no idea. This was on sale in 1982. I have no idea how I got this. I really don't because I would have been – too young, I, I you Nudity, don't know. Right? Again, I I don't think I saw it on. Yeah, I don't think I saw. It on the cover is um, the cover is by Fastner and Larson, and it's got these aliens uh, killing these soldiers, and it's a bloody cover. I mean, the the main girl in it is in like this super pneumatic girl in a tiny little bikini, and she's stabbing a guy through the head with her spear. I mean, it's bloody as hell. And there is, it's called the title on the cover is Revenge of the Star Queen. Never. Would I have been able to bring this into the house? <laughs> and I knew that. And so when I bought it, I actually had to hide it throughout the house. I had to keep moving the location uh, because I didn't want my mom because to Because if you kept it. it in the same and spot, you know, a- she definitely she, – she would check there every day, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, my mother was like a bloodhound. She still is for the most part. And so uh, it features a bunch of different stories. Uh, the writers are Bill Dubay, Bruce Jones. Everybody knows who Bruce Jones is. John Ellick-Sack and Frank Thorn, and then the artists are Vic Catan, Esteban Arodo, Alex Nino, Alex Nino, who we just talked about, of course. Yeah, Vic Catan, Esteban Arodo, Alex Nino, and Frank Thorne. And this, there was a bunch of things in this that really blew my mind. First of all, it's a black and white magazine, but it's a comic book. And it features nudity, extensive nudity. The main story features a guy who has sex with a uh, a really beautiful naked woman who has an ant head, uh, you know. And uh, it it features um, a sequence of uh, a guy performing a sex act that I was heretofore unknown okay. about when I was that age. Let's put it that way. And then it features the strip Gita, which was by Frank Thorne, which features nudity all over the place, including women with like three sets of breasts and things like that. <laughs> Bro, confuse the heck the, out the of reason, you. The boy, like, what? <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. And, and well, one of the things that was so startling about it was, of course, I recognized Frank Thorne's work. From oh, okay. I thought Sony. you were going to say uh, your, your precious uh, uh, tomahawk. Yeah, no, 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 no. I didn't know about Tomahawk then. But, like, I didn't – I don't think I knew that, like, artists that did mainstream comic books did this kind of stuff. Like, I didn't know that there was a crossover. And so it was, like, baffling to me that, like, oh, this Frank Thorne guy does this. Ooh, what is this dirty stuff? You know, and it was really, like, the introduction to that there was this whole other world of comic books that I didn't know about. Because I, I don't think it had dawned to me that there could be comic books like this. You know, that could have nudity and violence and language and all kinds of stuff. Because I grew up on DC, Marvel, 
Archie, Richie Rich, you know, all that kind of stuff. This was eye-opening to be like 11 or 12 and to see this stuff. And I had to constantly hide it. And at one point, I even gave it to a friend because I had to get it out of the house temporarily because the heat was on. So he kept kept it at his house for a while. And I I still have the magazine. (laughs) I still have the copy of it. So it's – look, it isn't – it isn't all that great. Warren, by the the ending of their run, which was not only a, a year or two away before they folded up shop, was definitely trading on more violence, more sex, just to kind of titillate its viewers. But at a, you know, at eleven or twelve, it was pretty pretty eye opening. So it, it's it remains a, a an important moment in my in my. Just say formative, and we get it. Okay, just move on. <laughs> Pages are still <laughs> stuck together. But anyway. Um... Right, yeah, because I took right, it too far. Right. We all knew what you were saying. It's okay. <laughs> I was not trying to get So um, mine also was a, a – my next pick is also an eye-opener, something different for me. Uh, again, comics people have never heard of. Uh, it was 1989. The month was August. And I go into my comic book shop, and I guess I had just had enough of these superhero funny four-color books. I don't know. I went to the comic shop guy, and, and you know, in, in my you know badass uh, was a senior year of high school, I'm like, I need some grown-up comics to read, or whatever I said to the guy. And he picked up two comics and put them in my hand and said, here you go. These are mature reader comics. Try these. They'll really open your mind. Because, again, I'm just reading superheroes at this point. I mean, straight up DC, Marvel superheroes, X-Men, that kind of stuff. And he put in my hands uh, – they, they actually published one month apart. One issue was actually uh, – I had been on the shelves for a month, but the other one was new. Put in my hands Doom Patrol, number 26 by Grant Morrison and Richard Case, which was the first appearance of the Brotherhood of Dada. And it was part of that painting at eight pair storyline, which I know Rob loves so much. And the other one was Sandman number eight by Neil Gaiman, Mike Dringenberg. Um, and by the way, Simon Bisley had done the cover in that Doom Patrol book. And both, and that's the first appearance of Death, which is an amazing issue. And I read both of these because the Doom Patrol comic is pretty much just an exploration of Mr. Nobody. It's not even about the Doom Patrol. It's about Mr. Nobody and how he went insane and gathers the Brotherhood of Dada with him. Uh, Sandman's all about death and, and that. And these two comics blew my mind. I didn't know you could write comic books like this at this point. And again, 17 years old, I mean, that is just prime time for, you know, dark, poetic kind of fiction, you know. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is exactly what I need. And it changed the way I read comics for years. I mean, this led me down a path of buying every single Vertigo comic for the first, like, five years Vertigo was around. I was buying all the mature reader imprints they had. You know, got me to read Swamp Thing and all these other various books that, and Constantine and Hellblazer or whatever. And it really changed the way I read comics for a long time. And I attributed it to that guy who said, here, try this kid. And I, I feel like I, it opened my horizons. Do you, do you know who that yeah, guy well, is? Yeah, well, no, I, I haven't seen him. His name's Rob Wilson. Uh, we hung out. We actually role-played together for a long time. Um, and he would – in the, the DC role-playing game, in fact. Uh, I, I lost track of him and his wife, though, many, many years ago. They were older than us. I mean, I was 19, and he was probably 32. So, I mean, you know, back then, he was the, he was the old guy that hung around the shop, you know? Hmm. Super nice guy, though. Very friendly. Yeah. That's good. That's what he was doing. Exactly. Again, he was doing so, his job. And again, comic, it, it, and the whole point of this was comic books that affected us and sort of changed us in some way, and, and that definitely did. Very cool. Very cool. I like that. I had I had a similar guy at a store that I shopped in in Philly that was kind of like my an older brother I didn't have, although I do have an older brother. But he was he was my comic book older brother, and then he would guide me through stuff that I never would have hey read. Hey, kid, otherwise. here's the so new Warren cool. magazine cool. and the new Debbie Does Dallas. Enjoy. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Uh, well, Black Kids, cool. Oh, um, so, uh, yeah, well, okay, well, my final selection is 1982's The Death of Captain Marvel, graphic mm. novel by Jim Starlin. 
And this was a big deal in so many ways. First of all, it was Marvel's first graphic novel. So that was like format-wise, that was a huge deal that it was this like 595 oversized album. It really gave the whole sense of like – Jim Shooter made comics a legitimate art form. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. I was channeling Jim. Yeah, sure he did. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, So I I remember buying this at the time. I mean the story is great in that it's not – there's no fights. There's no big bombastic – you know, uh, when Titans clash thing, it's just Captain Marvel is sick from he's contracted cancer from his uh, radiation poisoning from battling Nitro. And the whole story is, is him slowly slipping away and dying as he's visited by all the various heroes of the Marvel universe. And even though you've got all these crazy characters and Dr. Strange and the Hulk and the fantastic four, it's nevertheless on a very human scale because it is a bunch of friends and family coming to visit a, a dying relative or a dying friend. And it, it was, it was a big deal to me when I read it. Cause I read it. I guess like I got it like at the time or not too long after uh, it came out. Cause I bought it at a comic book store and, 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 you know, it was very profound. Now I have been fortunate that I haven't had that many experiences in my life where I've had to deal with a sick loved one. I have seen uh, this particular kind of thing up close, unfortunately, but when I was, you know, twelve or thirteen, it was pretty heady stuff to to watch a, you know, to, to to have Marvel kill one of its main superheroes off in such a such a way, such an adult way. You know, he doesn't die from an explosion. He doesn't die fighting the Anti Monitor. You know, he he, die, he, die, he just slowly dies in his bed. Um, it's also significant of the fact that it's never been right. done. Uh, you know, despite every other character, every other friggin' character that's come back, Superman, Marvel Girl, Flash, everybody has come, Bucky, everybody's come back, they have never brought back Captain Marvel. I think that it says something about, they realize the specialness of the way this, and how much you would undo this story if he's all of a sudden, he's like, hey everybody, I'm back, I've got my nega bands, I'm ready to go. Um, but something else that, that occurs to me around this story is not, I don't know. I forget how long it was after. It might have been years, but it doesn't matter. I read an interview with Jim Starlin, and he talked about working on this graphic novel, and he said that this book was his way of working through his father's death. His father died of cancer, and this was his, like, sort of project to exercise those demons of of what he lived through of helping his father uh, end his life. And this... This graphic novel was his way of doing that. And I don't know if it – by the time I read that interview, it had occurred to me that you could do that. I don't think I ever made the – I knew that you obviously could create art that would help you deal with things in your real life, obviously. You know, if you're heartbroken, you write a song about heartbreak, you know, or you're you're whatever and you write a novel. But I don't – I didn't know maybe at the time that you could – channel what was inside you into an, into a piece of entertainment or a piece of art that on its surface might not have any connection to what you're feeling but nevertheless it's expression and you need to express something and it may not express it in the way it may not be a direct line but it's there and the reason I find that so profound and this is something I've mentioned on I think our sixth anniversary and then our fifth anniversary is you know I, many of you may not know this, but I went to the what? Duke Hubert School. And, uh, yeah, I know. It's shocking. And the, the whole point was, you know, you don't go to the Joe Hubert School unless you are absolutely committed to being like a comic book artist because there's no backup plan. You know, the Joe Hubert School doesn't give you a rounded education. It just teaches you one thing. And 
you better learn to do that one thing in life or you're kind of screwed because that means your education isn't worth a whole lot. And unfortunately, you know, that didn't work for me. And now I ended up becoming an artist for 10 years and it was my life stream and I got to do all the things. I got to meet some amazing people and do some amazing jobs. But it did all end. It all fell apart in, in 2011 where I finally had to give it up and say I'm not a freelance artist anymore because I can't make a living doing this. And accidentally, this podcasting thing came into my life at exactly the moment that the freelance art thing went away. And, you know, I didn't realize that it's like I have the creative thing in me and it's got to get out. It has to get out or you'll die. And my creativity just found its way into another form. And thank goodness it did. I don't know what would have happened to me if it hadn't come along. But it's the timing of it is just unbelievable that literally the same year that I gave up being an artist, I found my way into this other thing. Now, obviously, we don't make a living doing this. Well, at least as far as we're telling you people. I'm in a mansion. We don't make, I don't know, you know yeah, right. Exactly. Um, yeah, I'm in the I'm in the my my guest house actually right now. I'm in my guest <laughs> house for myself. Um, but but no, I mean it. it, it podcasting has become my main artistic expression and I've given up everything else. And it just, the fact that it happened to come along when it did, it just seems unbelievable to me. And so that's what I think about when I think about the death of Captain Marvel was that Jim Starlin was using these characters, was using the Hulk, you know, was using the fantastic four, using these ridiculous characters to process something in his life. And I don't know, again, I think that was something that never occurred to me that you could do. And so while What's going on in my life at any given moment, I may not be literally talking about in these podcasts. It's finding its way there in its own roundabout way. And so that's how I think of – and that's why this book is so significant. And on top of it, it's just a great book. It's just a great well, um, book. That was an amazing story. I, I've got one goofy thing to add to the end of it, and then I'll address the rest of it. I My version of The Death of Captain Marvel is a trade paperback. And it was the first printing of that. They've got a whole bunch of issues, uh, including the Nitro battle, where he get you know he doesn't he unknowingly contracts the cancer and all this stuff. And it concludes with the the death of Captain Marvel. In the last page is um, them pulling the uh, you know the the the, the sheet over him. Yeah, and he says sheet over his head. It's very yeah. powerful. Well, this was the early days of trade paperbacks, kind of the wilderness years. Like Marvel and DC really hadn't developed their style. So the way it ends is he's gone. And, and is it the Game Master or the one of those guys, Collector or whoever, is pulling the sheet over his head. And the next page, inside a trade paperback, is a giant full-color ad for Ritz Bits Crackers. So it just completely <laughs> destroys the power of that moment because it doesn't even have like – it doesn't even say the end or conclusion or anything. Yeah, right, just and then the it's just an panel, ad for yeah. Ritz Bits. So it's like completely undercuts the power of the moment, and it's just so disappointing. But – Going back to your original point of I think if you hadn't – if it hadn't been for this podcast coming into your life, I think you would have found some other creative endeavor. I mean you're an amazing guy. You you had the uh, Hey Kids comics on the back burner. Even at that point, you were already starting to work to get, work on that stuff. And I, I, I've always been amazed by your creativity. And honestly, I just feel lucky to have stumbled into this. I – I've always had different outlets for different things. You know, before we started doing the podcasting, it was mostly role playing and things like that. But this has become my number one out. And before that, blogging. And after that, blog. I'm sorry, blogging as well. And this has become my number one outlet for pretty much everything. And it's really shaped my life. Between the podcasting and traveling for work, I have built a network of friends all over the country. And I use, and I'm not using that word lightly. I, I'm saying friends um, all over the country. 
uh, people I know that I have stayed at their house or I've had dinners with or have met for the first time. I've, I've even spooned with one of them. Um, it's uh, It's been an incredible experience, this whole thing from beginning to end. And Well, not end because we're still going, but it's it's really helped shape who I am today. And me, you know, picking up Secret Wars number two in the comic book store because of peer pressure has led to me having friends all over the country. Really, the two are—it's a direct line, and you're a huge part of that. And I can't thank you enough. And if it weren't for Rob, folks, and I've said this a million times, this podcast would have imploded in like the first few months because I am the worst about staying on track and getting stuff done. Look at the Ultraverse podcast. What happened there when I was in charge? It all fell apart after a couple of months. In fact, the only reason Justice League keeps going, that my Justice League International podcast every month, is because Rob wrote it in the contract that if I give up, at, you know, like if I have a three-month hiatus, I lose all my stock options. So I, I haven't had a choice. I've had to keep going. But um, anyway, it's, it's a tribute to you, Rob. Thank you for letting me be part of this endeavor. I mean, you, you asked me into it, as we'll discuss in a bit. And uh, it's been a wild <laughs> ride, and, I, and I'm just thrilled that you brought me along. And I think you, your creative energies would have ended up somewhere else, but I'm so happy that they ended up here for our friendship and also for the friendships we've built elsewhere. Yeah, we've been we've been very fortunate that this has ballooned into the thing that's. I mean, think about this: uh, when this episode comes out, uh, two weeks later, we'll be in Baltimore together, hanging out with several right. of our podcasting friends that we would have never met if we hadn't started this. That's Absolutely right. Crazy. That's right. Well, I had, I had one more comic on the list. Uh, mine's not as deeply as emotional, but it is sort of fitting. Uh, it is Aquaman number fifty-six. It came out in January 1971. I did not purchase this, though, until 1990. Uh, it is a, a famous Nick Carty cover. It says, The Creature That Devoured Detroit. I, I love it. I absolutely love it. It's uh, the story inside Steve Skeets and Jim Aparo. I mean, come on. Can't beat that. And mm-hmm. I was uh, – I was, I was – finished high school. I was going to comic conventions. I was about a year away from working in a comic book store. And my best buddy, uh, Simon, who we've talked about already, uh, at that time, he was collecting Legion of Superheroes. And he was having a blast collecting old Legion comics. He was buying them left and right. In fact, some of those earliest digests I ever owned were those Legion adventure comics, you know, digests. And he would come out of my house and he goes, well, yep. I'll be having that and I'll be having that. And he would just take them. And I'd be like, what? But not what? <laughs> so I've had to rebuy this damn thing because of Simon. Anyway, and I out of out of a little bit of jealousy, I'm like, well, I wanna I wanna buy back issues. I wanna be on a hunt for something. And I remembered I had bought the Aquaman miniseries in nineteen eighty four with Craig Hamilton. Is that right? I think. Yeah. I had bought that because mm-hmm. I thought it looked cool. And then I bought the subsequent miniseries that sort of looked cool, but then turned out not to be. And uh, I had bought, you know, a few Aquaman comics here and there, and I always thought the character was kind of cool. So Aquaman 56, so I decided, I'm like, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna start collecting old Aquaman comics right now. And I flipped through the bins, and that's the first one that jumped out of me, because that amazing cover, The Creature That Devoured Detroit. And I said, there it is. This is st- I, At the moment, I decided, this is important. I am starting my Aquaman collection today. And um, I love that comic. I love the cover. And it, in some ways, led us to where we are today with the podcast. I'm glad somebody put Aquaman on this list. (laughs) Someone had to. That's right. That's right. So there we go, folks. Seven comics from Rob, seven comics from me for seven years, celebrating uh, comic books that affected us in some way. And uh, that was fun. I enjoyed that. Yeah, that was cool. Well, why don't we take a podcast promo break, and when we come back, Rob and I have um, some correspondence to discuss, I think, is the best way to put it. (laughs) Seven, seven, seven. The Magnificent Seven They were only seven, but they fought like seven hundred Bring the kind of justice that would last Seven, seven, seven 
We, we had our assistants collate all the data they could find, and we found some correspondence that we thought to help celebrate our seventh anniversary might just be fun to go over. So we are going to we're going to read to you folks. It's story time. So we'll start with a dramatic reading by Shag Matthews. <laughs> this is an email back in the days when something called AOL was a going concern. Uh, the date is June 19th, 2001. Congratulations for those of you who were listening earlier. And I said, remember that date earlier when we did our in-stock trades recommendation. Those comics came out in 2001 because that's the date. And in fact, the, the JSA comic was one day after this email was written. So June 19, 2001. And just to put that in perspective because it doesn't sound that long ago, that is 17 years ago. This email. Oh, my gosh. It took me a while to convince my wife that 2001 was actually 17 years ago, by the way. So. <laughs> I don't know why that would really be a well, subject for argument. Well, it's just hard to fathom. It's like, you know, 2001. No, it doesn't feel that. It doesn't feel 17 years ago. Anyway, <clears throat> here we go. Here's the reading. Dear Robert. Yes, I, I actually wrote Robert. I can't believe that. Dear Robert, I just visited your Aquaman Shrine page. Wow, I've been an Aquaman fan since I was a child and have continued to follow his exploits. I've also tried to acquire as much unique memorabilia as possible. I have to say I'm extremely impressed by your collection. As I look through your list, I have copies of roughly half the items you've displayed. Ha, eat that, Rob. Anyway, uh, again, I'm very impressed by your collection. In fact, I've, apparently I'm repeating myself now. In fact, I've been looking for that JLA Aquaman board game for years. What a great find. Okay, I am still jealous you have that. Um... 
And then I go on to basically say I have some stuff if, if Rob wants to put on his website. I'm happy to do it. Uh, I did point out a couple of things that I thought were of interest in, and I'm not going to read all of this because these emails get very long. But uh, I talk about Aquaman figures from the Total Justice. I just I had to mention that. <laughs> I love that. I actually talk about the different ones. Like there's a you know a paint job from the WB store, and it says I hate variant paint jobs, but it was too weak to resist buying them. I talk about a promo poster. I do talk. I talk about this sticker that I really like. Promotional sticker from the same uh, from the Aquaman series from the '90s, the one that went 13. Issues. Uh, was it Sean McLaughlin? Is that who wrote yeah, that? Yeah, Sean one, McLaughlin. Yeah, and yep. Ken, Ken Hooper. Yeah. Yep, that's right. So it's a promotional sticker from there that came out that I got at a convention before the series came out, and it's black and white. And it says, "I Aquaman's holding this poor bird that died in an oil spill," and the tagline <laughs> something like "Save the Planet" or something like that. It's really I stuck this on my mirror, and it was on my mirror for like ten years. So anyway, um, I'm sure I have more items uh, of interest somewhere. If you're interested in, in, in photos, let me know. I'd be thrilled to help a fellow Aquaman fan. If you're not interested, I completely understand. Please feel free to drop me an email anytime you feel like discussing Aquaman merchandise. Thanks for your attention. Shag Matthews. Dude, 17 years ago, we quote unquote met. That's insane. I, I'm, 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 you know, I realized I blew right past the, if you're interested in photos, let me know. I didn't know what I was getting into at that point. But, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is, this whole thing is our little version of love letters that we're doing here. So I was wrote back, I wrote back, Shaggy, aren't I adorable? <laughs> wow, another Aquaman fan? I never see you at the meetings. Uh, thanks for the kind words on the site. Where did you hear of it, by the way? I enjoy putting all that Aquaman stuff up there. It's always good to know that people are actually reading this stuff. When did you discover Aquaman? I started reading comics when I was a real little kid way back in 1977, and soon after I discovered JLA, and that was it. I was hooked on comics. And I found Aquaman through there and always liked him the most. It's weird, especially since, in my humble opinion, he's been written so badly for so long, but I still dig him. Again, thanks for the kind words, Rob. That's fantastic. Oh, and by the way, I, I did the research on it. The person that directed me to your website was my old boss from my comic book store, Ned Stacy from Cosmic Cat Comics, where I still shop and I still see him. I saw him this weekend. He's the guy. He had been looking for I- images, and he found your website and goes, oh, my gosh, there's another Aquaman fan in the world. Here, you should go visit his site. Wow. And then I, I guess you had a contact email address on there, and that's what I sought out, which is crazy. So um, – so should you explain to the people at home real quick? Because the Aquaman Shrine in 2001 was not the same thing. No, I had a professional website, which was my illustration site called namtab.com. And I didn't know back then, because this was 2001. I mean, the internet was still kind of new. I didn't know back then that you could, that you should not like have your professional illustration site or whatever your professional site is. You shouldn't mix like your personal like <laughs> like you know likes with that. It should be very so. I had this whole section on Aquaman merchandise, not knowing any better, and I actually lost probably a couple of jobs that way because I got some comments from some clients that were like, you know, hey, I was interested in hiring you, and I'm still in, but like, what is all this? Like, what's with the Aquaman stuff? And they were trying to be gentle, <laughs> like you shouldn't. So I eventually pulled all that stuff off the Namtab site, but for the longest time. You know, you would go to my illustrations site and would have all my stuff about, you know, you can contact me to hire me. Here's my work I've done. Oh, and I'm, I'm also into Aquaman. So it was like a very, very strange approach to take. But I didn't know any better. <laughs> Crazy. So it's cute here because, again, these emails are all in June 2001. But the, the subject line, we kept changing. Uh, I don't know if you ever if you remember that. It was like I started the Aquaman website. You responded with the subject line, glub, glub. Uh, my next email to you, the subject line, the subject line says, "Look, it's Quisp. Never mind, it's just Driftwood." Um, <laughs> I, I, we, this keeps going for a while. Uh, it, 
anyway, so I, I'll, again, just going to read bits and pieces. You know, Rob, thanks for the reply. The more I peruse your website, the more I enjoy it. The, and I talk about how I found it. Uh, and then I worked for the comic book shop in, in college. And uh, my, my boss, again, sending, it me, uh, sending me the Aquaman site because he thought, you know, there couldn't be anyone else that likes this stuff. Uh, and I said, how often do you hear from fellow Aquaman fans? I can't imagine there's very many of us out there. I think I was right about that, but I think we found all of them, and they all are part of our community now. But anyway, uh, the origin of your website was quite humorous and sadly all too familiar. My friends gave up searching for rare Aquaman memorabilia years ago because I had everything they found. Then I, I, I pointed out a couple items here I thought would be fun to mention, stuff that I really cherished even back then in 2001. Uh, I had a 1968 Scourge of the Sea book, which a friend had bought for me as a present in an antique shop. It's, it's like one of those um, – what is it? You know, uh, the books where you have a, a text and then a picture, text and a picture. Um, well, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yes, thank you. But with a little tiny little square thing. It's cute. I adore it. And then I had, a, I have a Oh, the, a big, the big little book. You're specifically talking about yes. the big little book. Yeah. yeah That's yeah. what I'm trying to say. Uh, and then I have a, J a Justice League of America plate. It was number six in the series. Not that I'm a plate collector, but I picked up this one because it had Aquaman on it. It had the whole Justice League, but Aquaman was standing in the saddle of Storm, you know, his, his mount, which was awesome. And then a 1976 Pepsi drinking glass, you know, which I, I should have drank out of that tonight. I didn't think about it. But anyway. And then uh, this one that you've always been fascinated with. I have a set of microfiche. Which contained Adventure <laughs> Comics number 103 through 107. And the microfiche weren't old or anything, but the comic, it was like the only way you could get reprints of those comics. And I don't know, they, they still haven't reprinted those things, have Most they? Most of them, right, they're still, they're still not been reprinted. Right. So I got this microfiche with reprints of this stuff, and I got an old microfiche projector from uh, a college that was just getting rid of them because, I mean, microfiche projectors, seriously? I mean, the kids listening don't even know what those are, probably. And I would read these old comics on a micro, a giant microfiche, like the size of a TV in my apartment because <laughs> I was a dork. Then uh, I wrote, you asked when I became an Aquaman fan. I guess it all started for me with the Super Friends. I'm not sure why, but I always thought he was cool. Years later, I started reading comics. I really enjoyed the miniseries where he wore the blue suit, and I kept collecting. In fact, I made it a goal of mine to own every Aquaman comic book since his 1960s appearance. Now, here we go. Here's something interesting. The Loose Leaf Who's Who... <laughs> Published a few years ago, had a supposedly complete list of all of his appearances. It has been I've been using that as a guide. I can't tell you how many times I bought an issue from that list only to open it and find Aquaman in only one panel in the background of a crowd, and the entire panel is one solid color. I don't mind that too much. It's a hunt that it's the hunt that's fun for the issues. So yes, I, um, I even back then where we were talking about who's who, believe it or not. Now that's specifically the Mayfair. Uh, the companion to who's who, but, and then my signature line here, which I guess I started using just for you because I didn't start off our communications this way, but my signature line is a quote, green lantern has a power ring. Superman has a cape. Batman has an attitude and a fancy car. Me, I have an army and I intend to use it. Aquaman, King Arthur of Atlantis. Now that was from the Dan Jurgens run. Mm -hmm. So All right, there you go. I love that you get who's who in early, you know, I know. Like, There's a couple uh, of things that we're going to hit in just a second that are like, oh my gosh, 17 years ago, these were still going concerns. <laughs> Chekhov's who's who. If you bring in who's who in Act 1, you got to fire it by Act 3. You know? <laughs> uh, so I wrote back, uh, and it's funny, I actually used your real name, which I forget what it is. I don't remember it here, and I crossed it out and wrote Shag. Bartholomew. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, your boss sent you the link? Now I'm really curious. I didn't think anyone not on my email list actually read stuff on my site. 
I am very pleased to know it's spreading out there. Yeah, Super Friends is an early influence too. I still consider the Versus the Legion of Doom year to be the best cartoons ever. That cool voice for Black Mana. I have every single issue of JLA's original run, all 261 issues. Many of the exact same copies I bought off the newsstand when I was like 10 or 11. While I was in art school, hey, I was in art school, I sold all my comics to help pay for it. I had like 15000 at one point, but I never considered selling the JLA's. As my buddy Chris said, they're the Kelly family jewels. I always liked Aquaman as part of the story, which was rare, and it just sort of grew from there. And then we had a lot more back and forth after this. We're not going to bore you with all the details. I do want to point out that one of the emails from Rob uh, I got um, – by the way, the, the subject line becomes King of the Seven Seas after a while. But anyway, uh, one of the emails, Rob talks about how the uh, original 1986 miniseries was out of continuity, and he actually types the word sigh. <laughs> there it is, folks. There's a trademark, trademark Rob Kelly. <sighs> do, do one for us, Rob. Do it right now. That's, the price of, that's worth the price of admission right there. So in an email to me in June 2001, I absolutely love it. Ah. And then let's see. Uh, here's more subject lines. Look out, Tusky. It's non-dolphin safe, non-dolphin safe net. Man, I was really stretching for those things. Um, I do mention here, I said, just for the record, Nick Cardi is my favorite Aquaman artist. I really wish there would be a resurgent in his popularity. People nowadays don't even know his name. And I still, to this day, stand by that statement, actually. I would agree with that. Here's another hallmark of things to come. A subject line I started with was, Mara, you look hot tonight. Oops, that's Jean Grey. I thought you were my wife. But there it is. It was all there in the beginning. Hot and redheads. Right there, folks. (laughs) We were telegraphing it without even knowing it. So it, I just had to bring this up because, you know, I'll, oh, I'm sorry. There's more. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I did write this one. This one is, you found this one and it's perplexing. <laughs> I wrote, I wrote, this is from June 25th, 2001. I wrote, Shag, I was going to write you over the weekend, but on Friday I had both a job interview and a first date. So it was like flop sweat Friday and I spent the rest of the weekend with friends decompressing and talking about it endlessly. I think I talk a lot about Aquaman. Try the big stuff. You can get me to shut up. So I never got around to emailing anyone. Sorry. That's funny. Like, I had a tough time remembering what that date was. You would think I've had so few it would really stick out of my mind. But I really had to wreck my brain as to what the hell I was talking about. I don't know. But uh, it's crazy. I mean, it's it's funny. And there's a ton more correspondence here. But first of all, the fact that I kept these, that's the weird thing, is that, you know, I don't have that AOL account anymore. Apparently... Back in 2001, I thought these, this correspondence was important enough that I copied them out of AOL and pasted them into notepads and saved them to my hard drive, which I still have. Wow. That's the insane thing. I mean, either our meeting one fellow Aquaman fan in the world was that important to me, <laughs> or it just, uh, I guess I, I enjoyed our budding friendship there in 2001. Now, we, we kind of lost touch. Probably by the end of 2001, we weren't in touch all that much. And then around 2006, when you started the official shrine, I started following it, and I started submitting things, and then I started blogging, and it grew from there. Right, and then uh, then we jump way ahead to 2010. Uh, this is an email I wrote, get this, December 24th, 2010. So I had nothing else to do on Christmas Eve. At uh, 1 in the morning. At 1 in the morning. <laughs> you, you were staying up waiting for Santa. 1.13 in the morning. Oh, that's so sad. So I wrote, uh, Shag, thanks for the email. Happy holidays to you as well. I was actually just about to write you. Today I finished the Longbox podcast you did about 
who's who. <gasps> and I thought you did a great job, though I died a little inside when you said you didn't know who Gray Morrow was. You speak, <laughs> you speak well, and your voice is pleasant to listen to. Who wrote this? That may sound a little goofy, but there are a lot of podcasters who don't really speak well. <sighs> Raise his hand. So listening to them is a chore. There are shows I like content-wise, but delivery is so rough I lose interest, but that's not the case with you. Oh, my God. Who wrote this? To that uh, end, well, you do notice I am the one who highlighted what parts for you to read. Yeah, I know. <laughs> to that, yeah, this is all you're right. To that end, I wanted to run an idea past you. I've been meaning to expand the shrine into podcasting of some sort. I've got a shrine Twitter feed, a Facebook page, and doing a podcast is the one thing I haven't explored that I want to. My friends at my local comic shop are going to let me dabble in it a bit by appearing on their show and get comfortable, but at some point I'd like to do a full-on Aquaman Shrine podcast. But I wouldn't want to do it alone, so I was thinking maybe we could do a dual blog Aquaman Firestorm show. Look at that right there. Nothing right there. nothing regular that we'd have to really carve out a lot of time for. <laughs> but, <laughs> right, some, it became our life. But something we could do for fun and put up when the mood strikes us. Oh my god, you're so naive. I'm sure you know more about Aquaman than I do Firestorm. That I was true. It, yeah, that's absolutely true. But I thought it might be fun to bounce off each other since each of us have a field of expertise. With them both playing such a big role in bl- in Brightest Day, I figured we'd have a lot to discuss. Plus, of course, we just talk about whatever the hell we wanted. Let me know what you think about the idea. Like I said, I'm just starting to enter this world, so it'll probably be a while before I'm ready to fly solo. But I know I want to do this, and I think it'd be fun for us to do it together. And I promise I won't sucker punch you with the school of flying fish. Merry Xmas, Rob. That was a lie. I do feel like I get sucker punched quite frequently. <laughs> but um, note that. So that was December 24, 2010. We didn't start the podcast till September 2011. So it took us nine months to get this thing off the ground. Right, right. So now you wrote that at 1 o'clock in the morning. Here's the crazy thing. I wrote you back at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> So I discovered all of this tonight while I was sitting here with my wife, and I'm like, what the hell was I doing up on Christmas Eve at 3.30 in the morning? The packed social goes, lives of Rob and Jay. Right, and my wife goes, do you really need to answer that question? I'm like, okay, you're right, I stay up too late. Okay. So uh, I wrote back, hey Rob, thanks for the reply and kind words. I was pleasantly surprised to read that you'd been listening to the views from the log box. I really appreciate what you said about my recording voice. That means a lot to me. I had a great time recording that particular episode. I love me some who's who, by the way, and that was recorded last summer. Since then, I've become familiar with Gray Morrow, specifically his man thing work. See, I did, uh, I, did, I did get educated a bit. And if you read that sentence the wrong way, it doesn't sound good. Anyway, um, I love your idea. I've been wanting to do a Firestorm podcast for a while. Doing a joint Aquaman Firestorm podcast would be a blast. Now, just to give you perspective, this is 2010. I started the Firestorm fan blog in 2009. So I had been doing that blog for almost two years at this point. And Rob and I had actually done several podcast crossovers where we had done like a superpower. Not, not podcast me. crossovers, blog I'm crossovers. Sorry. Yeah, I know. You're, it's, yeah, I'm out of I'm out of I'm out of practice. Blog crossovers where we did like um, the, the the superpowers mini comics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We did that one about um, uh, about Aquaman uh, schooling Firestorm and how yep. to behave in the yep. Justice League shoes yep. and stuff. Yeah, we did several. Anyway, uh, here, here, this part's important. I said, I've got lots of quick thoughts, but I'll put them in bullet points to make it easier to read. Aquaman, water, and Firestorm, fire. There's a clever title in there somewhere using that expression, the words f- fire and water. Uh, little did I know I'd already written it. <laughs> it was there right there. It's there. That's where the name of the show came from, fire and water. Originally, this is not a joke, I was referring to the show as the fish fry podcast. That's right. If Aquaman was fish, Firestorm was fire. It was fish fry is what I originally proposed. Thank God we went with fire and water. We dare you to listen to this. (laughs) 
Uh, and then this part I think is kind of important too. I said, I like your philosophy in blogging about being kind toward the character and DC. Uh, well, I can be occasionally nasty on my Once Upon a Geek blog or views from the long box. I'd plan to be a lot more gentle on an Aquaman Firestorm podcast, which really goes back to this whole philosophy we've had since the beginning, which is find your joy. You know, why spend so much time being hot and bothered about something? Find something you enjoy and stick with that. It's a shame we had to do all those new 52 episodes. But anyway, um, <laughs> find something you love and stick with it. And it's all right there nine months before the show ever started. That's crazy. Yep. Uh, People probably are really enjoying us reading our old emails. All right. This, well, this will be the last one. And this yep. is this is jumping ahead, and it's another significant one. This is from, of course, at this point, then Shag and I do the show. We record the first episode of Who's Who, I think, six times. Uh, we, we sort of stumble our way through the initial episodes. Uh, we make the wrongheaded decision to have Frank on very early. And so we make our way through it, and we do we do four years' worth of shows. And then on September 23rd, 2015, at 6.09 p.m., I write my this. My birthday, by the way. There you go. I write this. Shag, I've been talking to my webmaster and designing uh, about designing me a film and water site, as I mentioned last night. Because, of course, I had started the film and water. I was, I think I was thinking of doing the film and water show. I hadn't done it yet. Maybe I just started No, I, no you'd, you'd already been doing film and water for a oh, while. But, you okay. but we, we couldn't. It didn't make. It wasn't making sense posting them on the Aquaman Shrine That's right. website and the Firestorm fan website. That's right. There it is. So I've been I've been talking to my webmaster about designing me a film and water site, as I mentioned last night. He asked if I wanted a site for just one show or a network. <gasps> I, uh, I had immediately wanted the former, but now I'm wondering, what do you think about setting up a fire and water network now? We've talked about doing it, and maybe this is a good time. We could split all the shows into their own feeds, have a forum where everyone can come and comment, no longer splitting everything over the AMS and Firestorm fan. And we have permanent webmaster to handle problems if they arise. We could even invite other shows we like onto the network, parentheses, Secret Origins, Supermates, etc. Close oh, wow. parentheses. And, of course, I responded saying we, this, uh, this, would, this could definitely work. And because we had been talking about for a long time, I was really bothered about Who's Who uh, being buried on our Fire and Water feed. I really wanted – for the longest time, I wanted Who's Who somehow to ha- be on its own, but I couldn't figure out how to get it as its own feed. At one point, I was actually thinking about just setting up another iTunes feed, and it would be published on both the Fire and Water feed and Who's Who. And it was going to have to be another one of the what, – what was that site? where We were – Blogspot. We had a Blogspot mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. Fire and Water podcast just so we could publish the MP3. You remember that? Oh, yeah. Oh, my, that's right. Oh, gosh. And there was that period, that transition period where I had to write the XML for like two years just to that's make right. the XML work. That's oh, right. wow. So, yeah. But look at that. So, Rob, you uh, you proposed the idea for the podcast and you proposed the idea for the network. Look at that. It's all there. It is. And that, that's a little – it was fun for us to go down that memory lane and reread all that stuff. And just, to, again, it all started 17 years ago to, to get us to this point so we could have our seventh anniversary of all these podcasts. And and everything that we've done and, and built has been just it, – because it's not about us. It's about the – forget. It's all for me. It's all about the community we built. And, and, and not even we. Just the community that has been built up around it. That's probably the better way to put it because uh, you know, these people are, are much more interesting than we are in a lot of ways. And, um, and, and the creativity they poured into it. I mean think how many songs have we played on our show and pieces of artwork have we displayed that people submitted to us? Oh, such a great collection of people. In fact, speaking of all you folks, we thought the last thing we would do is cover some feedback, specifically the feedback we received on the very first episode, all the way back to September 2011, we ran the first episode. Really, I remember saying many times, you and I said, you know what, we're just doing this for us. If anyone listens, that would be cool. But at the end of the day, as long as we had fun, that's all that matters. 
And then it turns out several people enjoyed it and left us some feedback. You yes. want to, some of these names are very familiar too, by the way. Yes, these are all our early adopters, as they say. So uh, the first comment is from little Russell Burbage. We didn't know to call him little oh back then. Gosh. We just called him Russell Burbage. Uh, he wrote, loved it. Is this going to be weekly? No, that's ridiculous. I'm there. <laughs> just listened to the first podcast of Fire and Water and really liked it. Nice job. Thank you, Russell. Russell's been there again since the beginning. And that's before he found his angry pants in his drawer. That's right. That's right. He's had them on ever since. Uh, my pal from the Joe Kubert School, Sean Tiffany, who, of course, has been on a podcast with me. We did the Irwin Hazen show together, one mm-hmm. of my oldest friends. Just listened to the first episode of the Aquaman Firestorm podcast. Fun, fun, fun stuff. Very informative. Never any dead or boring air and really put together well. Plus, I love the song at the end. Great stuff all around, and I can't wait for the second episode. And that song is uh, jumping forward a few comments. Let's see here. I will get there. I promise. Here we go. Uh, Daniel Siddical Adams wrote, the podcast was fantastic. Can't wait for the next one. Uh, and I guess I, and he, um, he's the one who wrote the song. He, uh, I, I think I cut it here. I, I, he had another quote on here, I, and I cut by accident, basically saying how, how much he loved the song. And that the song, of course, is by Daniel Siddical Adams and Ashton Burge, right. the Bad Man Pajamas. You still uh, use it to this day. We do. And I've hung out. I've eaten barbecue with those guys now. So, it's all again, all thanks to the podcast. Uh, we heard from Corey Hodgson. I uh, can't believe I, I didn't realize he was there in the very beginning. We've had a lot of communication with him over the years. He wrote, nice podcast. Keep up the great work. Can't wait for the next episode. Then we heard from David Mason. Um, he says, an Aquaman and Firestorm podcast? That's outrageous. Seriously, I can't get enough out of the shrine. Having a podcast about both characters from those two uh, awesome websites? That's awesome. Well, thank you, David. And then we, our very first iTunes review came from a gentleman named William Powell, who apparently listened to the first episode and probably never again because I don't remember his name. He says, uh, I'm a Firestorm fan. Don't know a whole lot about Aquaman, but I'm open-minded. Looking forward to future episodes. I hope Firestorm takes off, but with Gail Simone at the helm, I don't see how it can fail. Oh, William Powell, how you – there's no way you could have known the future there. <laughs> I loved William Powell in the Thin Man movies. Uh, we got a comment from <laughs> – uh, my old friend uh, that I worked with at Movies Unlimited, Glenn Walker, who unfortunately is no longer with us, uh, he wrote, I dug it a lot. You guys have great chemistry. Thumbs up. Uh, that's it, it took me back a moment when I saw that name pop up because, again, Glenn is no longer with us and he died much too, much too soon. He was always a big supporter of the podcast and stuff, so great guy. And we miss you, Glenn. He was a very big supporter very yes, early on. Mansura, I think, was his online Mansura, Twitter handle. yep, yep, yep. yep. And uh, he was one of the founding members of the – or at least uh, – or maybe joined us shortly afterwards. He was part of our Legion of Super Bloggers as well. Yep, yep. So I heard from Lee Novak, one of my buddies from the Firestorm fan site. He says, I really enjoyed the podcast. You guys did a great job of helping me get through my boring work day. Love the song at the end. Well, you weren't the only one, sir. That's right. Uh, caffeinated Joe left a comment. He was a longtime commenter on the shrine. Finally now, got is, this, li- is this Joe Slab? No, this is a different oh, Joe. Okay. Different Joe. Uh, he says, finally got to listen to the podcast today, and I loved it. I hope this becomes a regular feature, Rob. I know that's asking a lot, since I'm sure it takes a ton of work. Yes, it does. But I loved <laughs> it. And as for the Who's Who podcast, sign me up as a listener. I love the Who's Who comics, even the Loose Leaf edition. So <laughs> I will be an eager listener. Thanks so much. Thank you, Joe. Well, I wonder if Caffeinated Joe is still listening. If you are, send us who you, what your online handle is now, because I would love to know. Then uh, we got our, our very first email was from a gentleman who only identified himself as Colin, and I'm just going to cherry pick some of this. He goes, I listened to your whole podcast this morning and enjoyed it thoroughly. I love listening to you guys talk about Firestorm and Aquaman with so much passion and excitement. I also enjoyed that you talked about uh, so much about other comics coming in the whole in the new DC 52 titles. Oh, that's right. We went through the new 52 titles the first or early on, didn't we? Oh, wow. 
Uh, <laughs> you talked about a lot of the DC characters I loved as a kid. One that I didn't hear you mention was Booster Gold. For some reason, I've always loved him, especially those Booster Gold and Blue Beetle storylines in the Justice League. The Justice League after Firestorm was gone. Oh, wow. It's almost like prophetic for where I would end up in my podcasting career. Then we heard from my buddy Scott Gardner from the Two True Freaks Network. And I, I Scott sent us a message with some really good insight here. Scott said, I just want to let you know that I listened to and thoroughly enjoyed Fire and Water number one. It's about damn time someone showed a little love to fire uh, to Aquaman. I am an Aquaman fan from way back, particularly the awesomely illustrated Jim Aparo material. And likewise, I can't believe it's taken this long for us to get a Firestorm podcast. And he says, one thing, however, while I, uh, as I say, I dug the episode a lot, I'm not sure if maybe I missed something. What exactly is the show going to be about? Don't say Aquaman and Firestorm. Duh. What I mean is, I couldn't get a sense uh, if you plan to discuss uh, what will you be covering just the new and upcoming stories of the characters. Will you be looking back to older stuff? And he says, best wishes, guys. Keep up the great work. I think you've got a solid show in the making here. And, you know, that question really helped me frame what should we be doing. And the next subsequent episodes, we really trying to kind of define a mission statement for what the show was going to be. And then once we kind of got sick of covering Aquaman and Firestorm comics the last couple of years, it's just been a hodgepodge, yeah. admittedly. <laughs> Doctor but, Who and all kinds of stuff. Right. But at the time, it really did help us form uh, a, a plan and really helped kind of guide the show. So thanks for the uh, thought, Scott. We appreciate it. All right, we got a comment uh, back then from Doug Zuvisha. Of course, I've Woo-hoo. been friends with Doug all these years. Hey, guys, subject awesome. I just wanted to drop you a line and let you know you have risen to the almost top of my podcast listening. I drive 35 minutes to and from work each day, so podcasts have become my friends. You guys are right behind the All Yeah podcast. I'm about midway through your first episode, and I like what I'm hearing. It's like listening in on a conversation with you guys, which I guess is what it truly is. I look forward to hearing your assessments of the new 52, gentlemen. Take care and keep plugging away. Thank you, Doug. Yeah, again, another person I've hung out with now with multiple times. I've been to his house. We've had pizza together. Great guy. You know, Russell Burbage we mentioned earlier. I've hung out with him. Going to be seeing him soon. Um, amazing. Again, how this is brought Scott Gardner. I've had Thanksgiving dinner with him. I mean, just amazing how this has brought so many people together. Uh, Diablo Frank, another person I've hung out with and watched uh, him drink other people under the table. So Diablo Frank wrote in. Uh, now, we knew Frank already from his Martian Manhunter blog. So Frank doesn't even cut to the chase with anything like great job on the podcast. He just bails in and starts being mean. Uh, I've been listening to the podcast while cleaning house. A few brief points. Uh, he says one thing about Judd Winnick, and he, then he goes on to say, I thought Hal Jordan had the best costume with the sharpest superpowers figure, and it was just really interested in him as a kid until I read the stories. I have very little tolerance for the character today and came to appreciate Kyle Rayner as the firestorm of the Morrison JLA. Powerful mythology and a slew of characters I like very much, but so long as they uh, are subservient to Hal Jordan as the Green Lantern, screw that whole franchise. Uh, <laughs> Barry is the best Flash, though only not only was Wally a miserable character who brought nothing to the table, but he seemed like the surface-level Silver Age Superman retread as well. I hate him. In the last statement, nice to hear some Blackhawk love. I just wanted to read that because it's so indicative of everything uh, Frank would write years later. It's just so, like, you know, not he, – he doesn't mince words. He doesn't have time for being nice. It's just get right to the hate. So I love that, Frank. You, you never change, buddy. He's on point, sure. <laughs> Uh, I mentioned Daniel Cynical Adams uh, again. Uh, he, he did write about Hal. He says, I guess I'm in the, in the minority here, but Hal Jordan for life. I was beyond stoked when he returned a few years back. Then again, Hal's my all-time favorite comic character. 
Look at that. Thank you, Daniel Adams, for that. Uh, Daniel, however, has a black mark against him. He likes the DC movies. So, just saying. Man, that's going to piss him off. I'm going to get a nasty text about one in the morning on that one. Uh, then we heard from Dave Z. says, congratulations on the new podcast, Shag. I knew it was only a matter of time. I'm guessing the Dr. Fate and the Blue Devil podcast won't be far behind. You know, Dave, we've done episodes on Dr. Fate. We've done episodes on Blue Devil. I would love to do those shows. I just don't have the time. Yeah, uh, we, got, we got a comment from somebody named Ryan Daly. Uh, I didn't know Ryan Can went I, back that far. I, I know I didn't yeah. either. That's well, the thing. although, I, although, it, well, yeah, yeah, geez, okay, yeah, I didn't realize that. That's just funny. Um, he, he, he uh, my first memory of him was when he wrote us kind of a nasty uh, iTunes review. Right, uh, he was like, it, right. I mean, it wasn't nasty. It was funny. Though. Like, you know, it's it's that niche podcast everyone's been looking for, kind of thing. He was like <laughs> Earth Two, Frank, sort of. Uh, yep. He wrote, great podcast, fellas, fun conversation, and talk about the characters. It'll be nice to hear you chat next month after the first issues have shipped. Now get Frank and his Martian Manhunter from Mars Love in on this action. P.S. I just saw this cool new movie called Brick. If they ever make Star Wars movies again, they should get this Ryan Johnson guy to do it. Huh. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> that wasn't in the document when I composed it last night. Yes, it was. I, I don't know. I, I, it's funny. Ryan was really ahead of the curve there. It's great. It's weird. It's even almost like a different font. <laughs> um, I'm just saying something's a little weird about that last sentence. The rest of it is totally legit, though. I will say that. Uh, then we heard from Sphinx Magoo, who still listens. Fantastic. He says, can't wait to hear these podcasts when I get the time. Looking forward to it. Congratulations on spreading the flame. That's right, baby. That's right, because Fan the Flame was already on the fire on the Firestorm fan website, and I was saying it on the podcast right out of the gate. So there's more feedback there as well, but those were really the main ones we wanted to cover. A lot of those people are still in, uh, listeners and following us on the show, and thank you guys so much for putting up with us for seven freaking years. Unbelievable. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> it really is. We always sometimes there are some weeks where we are just barely putting this thing together at the last second. There have been times where we've recorded shows on Saturday nights and put it up on Sunday mornings, but we've pretty much always managed to do it. And uh, you know, there are times where it's a real grind, but most of the time it has been it has been an utter delight, and we're always very I don't know. We have a good time together, even when we're at each other's throats, uh, metaphorically. Uh, we, <laughs> we, we always have a good time, and like I said, I am from very proud of the the stuff that we built and uh, I'm really proud of the guys that we have on the team and the stuff that they put out. Cause I am like, even when it's a show I have no association with other than it's just on our network. I am so proud that I have something to do with a lot of the material that gets, that gets put out. Cause I think it's, it's great, great stuff. Well, the network has been the absolute greatest um, creative endeavor I've ever been part of. And the greatest collective group of people, creative people as well. I feel incredibly uh, honored to be part of it. And I don't know that I've said this yet, and I'm bearing it really late here in the show, so hopefully most people have turned it off by now. But one of the greatest things that's come out of this podcast is my opportunity to become friends with Rob. Um, we don't get to see each other that often, maybe only once a year or so, but talking to this man for an hour or two every week has been wonderful and amazing. There's a lot of off-air conversations that happen. There's a lot about our personal lives that we know about each other. I mean, I gave him my kidney. Um, it's, uh, I really am very happy to have you in my life, and I appreciate it, buddy, and I appreciate everything that you've done for me, and uh, I appreciate that we're doing this together. It, it, I couldn't possibly imagine it with anybody else. It's been absolutely wonderful, and thank you. For your friendship. Thank you. Yeah. I don't we should wrap this up before it gets completely absurd. But yeah, you you've been a great partner. And I've said this on the air before that it's it's it sounds like a joke, but it's like had I known how involved doing a podcast with somebody is, I never would have done it. Because <laughs> because because it would have scared me off. It would have right. I would have been like, Oh my god, there's no way I'm gonna be that comfortable being that 
involved with somebody on a weekly basis. But I'm glad that we didn't know. I'm glad that we were just, you know, we're like, let's just try it because it's all worked out. And there were, you know, I mean, there's a lot of discussion Shag and I have behind the scenes about what are we doing this week? Oh, I can't do that. Or I need off this week. Or I'm traveling this week. Or, I, you know, what, I, I'm in lockup this week. Whatever, whatever works out. <laughs> and we have always covered for one another. And even in moments where we've both been really stressed, we've had stuff in our lives, we have never like taken it out on each other or ever been like, why don't you do this? It's always been good natured. And it's always been, I can't do it this week. All right, I'll cover for you. Or I'll, you know, or I mean, it's, it's just been, it's really, a true partnership. Yeah. It's really been effortless. And you see, even from the emails, how much right from the beginning, we're, we're throwing each other's, throwing ideas back at one another, you know, like I came up with the basic idea of maybe a podcast. You came up with the name, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, we just did that. And it just, it just worked out really perfectly. And so you came up with an idea for a network. I yeah. did all the effing work on the website. You absolutely did. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, I almost that killed a, me. I've said that a million times. I, if, <laughs> if, if shag had not been there, the one to do it, we would have no network because there were some really big technical problems. And there were times where I was like, F this. Like, this is just too complicated. I can't be bothered. This is not worth the effort. And Shag just kept plugging away. And now we have this beautiful website, thanks to Jeff Kilroy, which is, again, he he suggested the network. Thanks, Jeff. Um, (laughs) But we have this beautiful site, and we have all these great people that we hang out with. And it's the the rolling conversation that we have on Facebook with the guys. The Fire Network private thread that we have is, like, one of the most fun things I get to do throughout my work day. Where I check and I see we have all these crazy conversations and it's just it's been a blast and I I never wanted to end you know I just want to just keep doing this as as much as I can because I'm just I'm, even when there are shows that we put out either individually or collectively that I'm like ah that one wasn't great well you know we'll go get them next week it's always been it's it's always had that kind of just keep going attitude and it's been it's been a lot of fun so it's a wonderful yeah. it's been an amazing creative endeavor and uh the as far as you know the big thank yous you've you've been the man who's done editing almost all of our episodes that we record together so thank you very much for that because otherwise we wouldn't have made it and one more follow-up you said earlier we should end this before it gets too ridiculous i would say that happened about an hour and 38 minutes ago uh with all the self-indulgenceness but that's okay uh, yeah, so i agree with that for, for once i'm in agreement with you so folks i tell you what instead of don't don't spend time heaping praise on us obviously our egos are already through the roof we don't need that but go out to our website and tell us some of the comics that affected you and how they affected you we'd love to hear some of those uh and with rob what's our website fire and water podcast that's right. That's our network website. Heck yeah. Seven years later, we can say that. And uh, we're also on the social medias, of course, Facebook and Twitter and all that jazz. You can find us out there. And I, again, we want to hear from you. We want to hear your thoughts on some great comics. And um, it's just be fun to hear from you guys. You know, we love we love the feedback. It's amazing. So I think that's going to do it, Rom. I think that is going to do it. All right. Well, folks, until next time, uh, here's to another seven years. And, oh, my God, I can't believe we're going to do this another seven years. But anyway, (laughs) uh, fan the flame. And ride the wave. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together. Soak them down or burn them up. No one does it better. Whenever you find trouble, they'll always be there to catch them. Towards their hair. They stand for truth and justice. And see a land in there. Aquaman and Firestorm, they make a super pair. Aquaman and Firestorm, super friends forever. Yeah.
I can't go out without saying support Firestorm, fan the flame. There you go. <laughs> I got to work on that. I don't have like a catchy phrase. I, fan, the, <laughs> fan the flame is great. I don't have like an Aquaman. I, I got to work on that. I've only been running the damn thing for five years. I haven't come up with any catchphrases yet. Swim with some dolphins. So, talk to some fish. Something like that. I, I have no idea. Uh, but anyway, thanks for listening to the show, and uh, we hope you come back for episode two, uh, whenever that gets put up. Uh, we will announce, whenever, whenever the episodes come up, we will definitely announce it on our respective sites. Until then, uh, please, as uh, Shag says, fan the flames, and uh, thanks for listening. Shag, what do you want to say goodbye? What's that? You want to say goodbye, Shag? Goodbye, Shag. <laughs> thanks for listening. Goodbye.